This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is September 23rd, 2021, and this is episode 258. I'm Dr. Lindenbaum. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, the election is over. We can't wait for the next one. That's going to be just like the last one. It's deja vu nonstop. It's so good. I I put it in the Slack and I put it on our Twitter thread at Politicos Pod. I almost meant to put it up on the feed the re- to just replay our analysis of the 2019 election because it would work. Almost. Mostly. Yeah, change some of the names. I think it was a... Yeah. A, a lot, I think we we'll are probably be a lot more uh, critical of Sheer than we'll probably be able to tool in this. But yeah, otherwise not much uh, difference in terms of the outcome or some of the pontificating. But we'll get into it after we get through the greatest BC Premier bracket. But before that, we have to, of course, thank everyone who contributes to keep this show going who gives to us monthly, who gives to us annually, you can join them at patreon.com slash politicoast, get access to our Slack channel, get the ad-free version if you want. Speaking of, let's go to the BC Today ad. Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast, enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to politicstoday.news slash free dash trial. Let's get back to the greatest BC Premier bracket. Last week, we had the coalition liberals, John Hart and Boss Johnson, face off against one another. Uh, Boss Johnson ended up winning it. He was, I think, able to post more accomplishments because he didn't govern during the war. And so we have a lot of good things like the broad enfranchisement of most citizens to thank him for. He ended up winning 14 to 6 on our Twitter poll. So we'll get a new Twitter poll going up for the next two who are also liberals. These two predate Hart and Johnson. This is John Duncan McLean versus Thomas Dufferin or Duff Patello. Let's start with John McLean, John Duncan McLean. The most interesting thing I think about him is probably that he's named John McLean. <laughs> Insert your diehard reference here. He was the 20th Premier of BC from August 20th, 1927 to August 20th, 1928, a full year in office. He took over the BC Liberals when John Oliver died. Not that John Oliver. This is all getting very confusing. And not that BC Liberals. Yeah. Uh, he unfortunately was not able to reverse the party's declining fortune and was defeated by the Conservatives in 1928. Uh, the Canadian Encyclopedia described him as an unimaginative and colorless premier. Which, what an encyclopedia feels the need to editorialize about that? That really says something. I could find literally nothing about what he did as premier. I'm sure if I tried a bit harder. Before becoming premier, he was Minister of Education and he served as Minister of Finance. He, after losing the job as premier and leader of the liberals, he tried to run for the federal liberals and lost by 100 votes. And so he got appointed to the Canadian Farm Loan Board, and he served there until he died. 
Uh, he was also a Freemason. That was the one other thing I found, or at least he has a profile on the BC Freemason website. Anyway, John McLean, yippee ki motherfuckers, is up against Duff Patello, the 22nd Premier of BC from November 15th, 1933 to December 9th, 1941. He became leader of the Liberals after McLean was defeated and he led the opposition during the Conservative era that followed. He managed to sweep to power when the Conservatives completely crumbled in 1933 and basically ran no candidates at all. We talked about that before. That's like winning an election. It turns out it really does. Uh, But he was still elected amidst the Great Depression, and so he had a huge challenge with that and inherited a government that hadn't done much. So he had to try to extend government services, unemployment relief. He fought Ottawa, as they all did at the time. I saw a note saying his frustration over the limited provincial powers led to a reappraisal of federalism, but we might have to get into that later. And I like this. In 1937, he ran the BC Liberals under the campaign of uh, socialized capitalism. He ended up not winning a majority in 1950, in 1941, as the CCF started to become more prominent. And he refused, as we talked about before, to form a coalition with the Conservatives. And he was deposed by his party in favor of John Hart. Patello has many things named after him, a bridge, a park, a mountain, a range of mountains, and some glaciers. So you will see his name around the province. Go to politicos.ca slash bracket, look at our Twitter feed for the poll that will be there for the next week. John McLean versus Duff Patello. All right, let's jump into our election analysis. I'm going to call it Stuart Prescient. Uh, it's a deep cut for people who aren't on our Slack. His so Stuart Press, good friend of the pod, he's been on the show many times, wrote a piece for the conversation that went pretty viral. I saw Aaron Weary t- retweeting it. It's this idea, and he wrote it, th- I think, three or four days before the actual vote and was talking with us about it, like a week before that even, that it was the campaign where every party failed. And it seems like he had the best analysis and was so bold as to put it out before the election. Like, he could have saved it, but then it wouldn't have been as fun. And I wouldn't get to use my pun that I just came up with. That analysis is pretty spot on. Can you look at anyone, uh, any party's election at all, and say, yeah, they did a good job or got what they wanted out of it? You really can't. In large part because, like you said at the top, everyone kind of came out where they started, but the Liberals didn't take their majority. The Conservatives didn't start to break through in 905 in the mainland. Blocks the block. They were only saved because of a uh, question during the English language debate. The NDP added, what, one seat out of everything? And there's no show for that. The, the green leader didn't even crack double digits in her... Which notably means board. she doesn't get her refund from Elections Canada. And they could really use the money. Like, they are not flashing the moment. Um, and the People's Party didn't even get it, a seat, so thankfully. Yeah, they didn't even get a seat. So like, li- literally nobody got anything they wanted out of it. I think we'll dig a bit more into it. I don't want to spend too much time on the results themselves because as you said a they're the same as last time pretty much plus or minus two for each party and b everyone else has talked about it and you can find the numbers and us talking about numbers is not that exciting 
but what I did find interesting is rather than just look at, oh, the result, the top line result is the same. I did crunch the numbers and I saw Eric Grenier, I believe, and a couple others did this as well, is looked at the regionals. And there some trends do come out like the greens obviously went down everywhere, but they had their biggest drops in PEI and New Brunswick, really on the Maritimes and also in BC where they dropped seven points. Um, it's the conservatives I found really interesting. They dropped 13 and a half points. That was the biggest drop of any party in any province in Alberta. Like El the conservatives bled their Alberta votes. Saskatchewan is now the most conservative province in the country which isn't that surprising. Conservatives also lost votes in Saskatchewan and Manitoba, and they picked them up from Ontario East. So that is a very slight vindication of their strategy. If nothing else, it means their vote is slightly more efficient than it was before. It's exactly two seats more efficient. Yes. But they're making some gains in, in the East, and obviously not enough to substantially change anything really but it is a sign that they're able to that they at least understand they need to recalibrate more toward the, the parts of the country that isn't just going to give them 70 percent of the vote or you know 50 percent if they're on a bad day yeah the liberals by contrast lost a little bit of vote share in ontario 2.7 percent uh one percent in quebec one point 8% in the Northwest Territories, but that's a pretty small number of votes. And then they picked up a bit everywhere else, most notably New Brunswick at 4%, but like just they traded their seat, their votes and seats around a little bit. The NDP picked up votes everywhere except Quebec, where they lost a point, and Newfoundland, where they lost six and a half points and an MP, which was unfortunate for them. The NDP did pick up 7.4% in Alberta and almost 5% in BC. The Alberta numbers are still like really fascinating, right? The Conservatives drop 13.5%. The Greens drop 2% in Alberta. Where do those votes go? They go 1.4% to the Liberals, 7.4% to the NDP, 5.3% to the PPC, and probably another 1% or 2 to the Mavericks. So like the NDP was the winner somehow of the like Conservative Green collapse in Alberta. I do wonder how much of that is coming off the popularity of Rachel Notley in the province. Yeah, if you don't want to vote conservative, where do you park your vote as a protest? Well, like the APP seems a fairly safe option in Alberta. They are generally to seem to have run a fairly successful government locally there, and particularly if you don't think Trudeau gets uh, or should get rewarded for the uh, election call he made, made sense that that would where you, where you part your vote. Probably half the uh, ridings in the province didn't even have a Green candidate for that bit of protest vote. So, yeah, why not the NDP? Indeed. And Jugmeet Singh is the most popular leader still, and I think his popular popularity is still reasonably high in Alberta, despite his sometimes he'll admit it stance on Trans Mountain expansion. Although he won't say what he'll do with the pipeline now that the federal government owns it. Uh, looking at the seats themselves and just some highlights in BC, the Liberals took the most seats despite becoming third in the vote share. They have 15 right now pending the final count in Vancouver Granville. We're at 5 to 8 p.m. on Thursday evening and 
they still haven't finished counting votes there. Talib Nur Muhammad is in the lead there. Over the NDP, who have 13 seats province-wide, they got 29% of the vote. The Conservatives have 13 as well at exactly one-third of the vote. And the Greens have one at 5% of the vote. The interesting seats I was looking at, Burnaby North Seymour stayed liberal. Surrey, uh, South Surrey White Rock went conservative again. Uh, that was a rematch with Gordy Hogg, the liberal. Cloverdale Langley City was really interesting to see liberal John Aldag beat conservative Tamara Jansen, who was infamous for the lesbian activity comment in the conversion therapy debates. So I know many people who were excited to see her lose that seat. Richmond was really interesting as both seats, Steveston, Richmond East and Richmond Center, went to the Liberals, one of them very narrowly. Yeah, that's quite interesting. And probably the thing that's actually generated the most kind of post-election discussion on there was the drop the Conservatives experienced among uh, heavily Chinese ridings, uh, where their vote shares dropped fairly significantly. And in the case of Richmond, it cost them two seats. Yeah, ironically, there's another Richmond riding in Ontario, Richmond Hill, I think, where they also lost vote share among the Chinese-Canadian community, which sparks competing theories. One is the Conservatives didn't take anti-Asian racism seriously enough, and there was a lot of frustration following, for example, the comments of Derek Sloan when he was still a Conservative MP questioning Theresa Tam's loyalty to Canada. And the other theory is the Chinese government tried to influence WeChat groups and push anti-conservative propaganda. Yeah, and there's probably a little bit of something to both. There was, I think it's the Global Times, I want to say, a Chinese Communist Party publication that does English language media, put out a pretty strongly uh, worded article against the Conservative Party, which a lot of people read as foreign interference or attempts to nudge the election in the direction that they want. So it's certainly not out of the question that uh, similar attempts were made in Chinese language uh, social media and media generally. But every community is quite heterogeneous. And so assuming an entire community will vote one way or react to messaging one way or another, I think is a mistake too often made. And so I don't want to dwell too much on that because I don't think there's a lot of evidence yet. I'll be interested to see as pollsters dig into these questions, if anything comes yeah, out. Yeah, I, I, I think it's going to be interesting to watch the reactions are to those uh, issues raised with that. Because that, that, I think, is something we'll likely see a push by definitely the Conservatives and maybe even some of the other opposition parties. Uh, Brad, local uh, Port Moody the, mayor, or local mayor here in next door, Port Coquitlam, Brad West, was calling for an inquiry into foreign interference already. Yeah, well, there's that. But the uh, special committee on, I can't recall what it was called, but basically the China Relations Committee that the opposition pushed through over the liberals' objections after the 2019 election. I, I could see a push for that to both continue in the new parliament and to, to take up this issue. Uh, a couple other interesting ridings. Uh, my own riding, Coquitlam Port Coquitlam, did not end up being that interesting. A liberal Ron McKinnon won it quite handily over the Conservative. It was still more interesting than my riding of Vancouver East, where the uh, you know, 
question on everyone's mind was under or over 50%. For the Did they declare it before the polls even closed? <laughs> no, not that I saw. But I was actually at an event that night and was not checking my phone right as the polls closed in uh, the West Coast. So didn't exactly know, but very likely got called over. A little more interesting is next door to me is Port Moody Coquitlam, where uh, the NDP's candidate, Bonita Zerillo, a city councillor here in Coquitlam, she beat uh, sitting Conservative MP Nellie Shin quite handily as well in a rematch that was one of the closest elect, one of the closest races in the last election. Over in Nanaimo, Ladysmith, Green MP Paul Manley notably lost his seat and came in third. Right now, Lisa Mary Barron for the NDP is beating out Tamara Cronus by, I think, a thousand votes. So it's, I don't think that's likely to switch, but still quite notable that Manly fell quite a ways. Obviously, Elizabeth May won, but she still lost like 10,000 votes over what she had in the last election. I think she was down to her low, her lowest victory, which was still quite handy, or it was quite easy for her to win because the other, the conservatives, liberals, and green, the conservatives, liberals, and NDP kind of split the remaining scraps of the votes in Sandwich Gulf Islands. Yeah, it, it's easy to think of it as a safe green riding now, but hasn't always been the case. Uh, before 2011, it was held for several cycles by, uh, well, first, but I think he actually might be, yeah, reform. Yeah, it was originally reform riding. I guess technically originally a New Democrat writing, then for a decade and a half a, a reform slash conservative slash alliance writing before May finally picked it up in 2011. Yeah, and I guess we'll have to see if Elizabeth May ever retires, if it's her personal popularity or the people there really do like the Greens. I suspect it's a popularity thing. I think in large part that's the case. I mean, that's, that's the ride I grew up in, and I, I get the... I, I was out of there by the time they got elected, but I get the sense that, yeah, a lot of people there personally like Elizabeth May, but we're not the type of people who are going to be diehard Green voters, no matter who the candidate is. And we'll get to the Greens as we break down the parties themselves in a bit, but it's... Yeah, the Greens don't represent anything specific right now so it'll be the riding to keep watching if she ever does retire the in most interesting riding in the province probably is vancouver granville where liberal talib nur muhammad is still up by 200 votes i believe over the ndps and jolly apadurai um like i said there's still 55 percent of the mail-ins to count and then we'll see Nur Muhammad's campaign was plagued by some bad headlines about how many times he's flipped houses in the area, and that doesn't seem to have sunk his campaign. At least, maybe it gave him some wind in his sails with the people who admire that type of entrepreneurial spirit, to put it one way. I think in Vancouver, that is not a huge amount of people. Uh, <laughs> given where the, the housing conversation is. But, hey, if anything, he is an expert at flipping things in Vancouver, so why not a writing? I, I did make the joke that night that the 
votes in that were flipping more times than he'd flipped houses, but and that got a little bit of play because I think it was yeah, the no, obvious I, I think joke. Made, yeah, like I, I made a version from that joke. I think everybody has made that joke at one point or another, but it works. Let's go across the rest of the country quickly, not to pick on too too many more ridings, but I grew up in Alberta, so I pay attention there. It was really interesting to see. Two seats go Liberal again, Calgary Skyview and Edmonton Centre. I think Edmonton, the Liberals had won four seats in Alberta, if I recall correctly, in 2015. And Edmonton Centre was one of them. I don't know if it was called Calgary Skyview at the time, but they have those. I don't think they've renamed anything since Yeah. So, probably was. And the Skyview seat was actually a pretty handy win by the Liberal there. Uh, meanwhile, in Edmonton, the NDP managed to pick up Edmonton Griesbach with new MP Blake Desjardins, who's uh, prominent for being the first two-spirit MP to be elected. Desjardins is a Métis man as well. He'll be really interesting to watch. And at least one of the benefits of this election is it's rearranging the deck chairs or it's game of musical chairs, but at least there's a couple new characters. And I think a little bit of fresh blood is always good in politics. Despite our predictions last week, mine were quite wrong. Saskatchewan was not interesting at all. I think there was one seat that was maybe almost a race, but no. Yeah, so it's basically, I think, supplanted Alberta as the most solidly conservative and uninteresting uh, province electorally, just because it is such a one-party dominated province. In this and that's true both federally and provincially, as you see cracks in the conservative provincial government's coalitions in Alberta with the NDP winning in 2015 and doing and looking like Rachel Notley would sweep to a massive majority if the election were held tomorrow versus the Saskatchewan party has held the province for many years now and sees no path to not holding power. Out east there were a couple of other interesting races that were notable. Kitchener Centre was somewhat interesting, obviously, because the Liberals suspended the campaign of the MP who was accused of repeated sexual harassment. Uh, And it seems all of his votes went to, or at least largely went to the Green candidate, Mike Morris, who won there. So he's the kind of, he's the extra Green pickup that cancels out the Paul Manley resignation or loss, concession. Uh, It's a win by default almost, though. Yeah, that, that one's interesting because I don't think anyone would have guessed the Greens would have picked that one up at the start of the election. Mike Morris is apparently a fairly well-known person in the riding and has a lot of personal popularity from what I've heard. So that may go to help explain it once the uh, Liberals are no longer a factor there. So Morris ran it, it really- in 2019 against... Raj Saini, who became the MP there, he actually got, for the Greens, 26% in the 2019 election, beating out the Conservatives. Pretty respectable Yeah, it was one of their second place. So I think that's what gave him the ability to build off of. So he did grow his vote from 14,000 to 17,800. So I take it back. He didn't necessarily steal all of the Liberals' votes as so much as built on his own brand and probably did win that on his own worth, as well as the Liberals, of course, not being there. The Liberals still got yeah, 60%. And that part of Ontario, 
Yeah, it's not part of Ontario that kind of stretches between Kitchener and Guelph. It's probably the most fertile draft in the province in uh, Ontario. And, I don't know, maybe it would be a good spot to try try and run if you were, say, a leader interested in uh, getting into Parliament. Of course, too. I'm not sure who they ran first. Of course, now they can't run her there because I can't imagine Mike Morris is going to give up the seat he fought two elections to take. Yeah, but... Particularly because if it does go to a by-election, the Liberals are going to nominate someone there that isn't going to be forced to resign after the uh, close of nominations, and you can't necessarily count on the same uh, lucky breaks going the greatest way there. We're in Ontario. I want to mention that the Spadina-Fort York candidate as well, Kevin Vuong, who was listed as a liberal. And when you look at those vote totals, it says 159 liberals. This counts Vuong against that. But he was actually, his campaign was suspended, but he still won following another round of sexual assault allegations, which he has contested. And he has now said he will take his seat. So we do actually have one independent, which actually just brings this election result even closer to the 2019 election results. Only I think Jody Wilson-Raybould's win as an independent is more... It's a little different. Yeah, a little different, a little more, like, celebratory than the asterisked independent here. While we're on the Liberals, they did lose two cabinet ministers, Bernadette Jordan, who was the Minister of Fisheries, and Mariam Monseft, who was most recently the Minister of Rural Economic Development. I can't say I'm sad to see Monseft go. The um, conduct during the proportional representation or, or electoral reform discussions back when she was minister for uh, democratic reform was one of the low points in that parliament, and particularly the stunt of holding up the I can't remember the exact name formula. This fairly simple, if past high school math formula about how the proportion how the seats would be proportioned, and basically go, nobody could possibly understand this. Aren't all Canadians too stupid to go for like all forms of rock but do it thing? And yeah, glad to see some uh, eventual electoral consequences for that, even if it's somewhat more delayed. Yeah, and there's a lot of questions around whether Jordan lost her role because she was a minister on the East Coast for the decisions made around the fisheries programs trying to negotiate between the Mi'kmaq people and the local settler fishers who didn't like the recognition of the Aboriginal rights and title to give them, what was it, a sustainable livelihood fisheries? Something Basically, yeah. a, a, a different fishing season, I think. As well. Yeah, they could fish all year, but it was a moderate livelihood fishery, so they couldn't get too rich off it, which is a weird phrasing that the courts put in there, but it didn't, you know, recognize they had the right to fish there, and there'd been a lot of pro protests over the years, the last few years, they're quite heated at times, and I think there was a wide view that the federal government uh, didn't handle it as well as necessarily could have been at times so it makes it a little bit harder though for trudeau to come out with a new gender balance cabinet if he is down to uh prominent women and i'm not sure how many 
of the new liberals, what their gender diversity is. So a little bit of trick, tricky work to figure out there. Trudeau never seems to be in a rush to govern, so he's got some time. Yeah, how long was it that he waited after 2019 to recall Parliament? I think it was like a fall election. It was until February or something, or March, or even later. It was something like that. They turned out to have very little time to actually do anything before the pandemic hit. Just, yeah, they really dragged their feet on getting things going again after that. Have we had a budget yet? I think yeah, we, we did, did this one, yeah. Past, we did yes, this year. This it budget. wasn't one in 2019. We finally got one, and... Yeah, it was weird because it was basically a pre-writ budget. Then they waited so long that everybody basically just internalized whatever the budget was and didn't really care anymore because it wasn't new. I was going to say four more years of this, but probably not. We'll come. No, the fun thing is because it's a minority government, we're probably going to be back here eighteen months from now. <sighs> Let's come back to that towards fun and the. Uh, end of our discussion on the election, but let's get into how everyone did fail and why Stuart was right. And I want to start with Elections Canada, someone uh, Stuart didn't mention in his piece, but something that came up quite a bit on Election Day, even a little bit before, and I've seen a lot of criticism for. And the the overall takeaway is our turnout was down to 60%. That's down from 66% in 2019. It's a little bit better than we did in 2008. I don't blame that all on Elections Canada. Obviously, I think the parties can all share in our disillusionment and why people didn't feel like voting. But Elections Canada didn't make it particularly easy for everyone to vote this go-round. Yeah, there's some long lines and a couple fewer polling places than usual uh, in some places. In Elections Canada's defense, though, they took a look at the pandemic situation, made some adjustments, and went to the government and said, hey, we're concerned about a pandemic election. We want a bunch of changes to our enabling legislation to enable us to better handle a pandemic election that the Trudeau government just didn't take them up on and was uh, considering doing that later, but definitely didn't get around to it before they called the election. So I think, yeah, Elections Canada probably could have handled things in their pre-existing framework better, but they were cognizant of the problems and tried to get them addressed with the government. Yeah, I think there was an election amendment act on the order paper that died with the election call. So I definitely put the buck with Trudeau and his failure here, like his government was told what they needed to do, was given recommendations and didn't do it. It's frustrating. Maybe Elections Canada could have done more. Our governments, especially federally, do need to fund our election systems better. I've Everyone griped about the $600 million cost, and I kind of get that, especially when it looks so same so much the same, but democracy does cost money. And so I don't really want to spend time complaining about the dollar figure when we should probably be spending more and spending it better and passing better bills to empower them to do things. And then also, of course, not calling elections cynically, but every party will do that at some point or another, as we've seen here in BC. Although now that we're looking at the curve of this fall, this feels like as bad or worse of a time to have called an election than last fall. 
Was it though? Like everyone's vaccinated. Like where, or maybe not. Not everyone's vaccinated. Not enough people are vaccinated, but most people are vaccinated at this point. Elections BC would have had more time to spin up uh, any procedures they would have needed to to do. Based on everything, like I, the we need to have it now before we have another year pandemic just doesn't really fly too much once you if if they'd have known they could have held it this summer that might have been the perfect time or even two or three months before they did it that might have been slightly better but let's not relitigate the 2020 bc election again let's talk about the parties and how they did federally do we want to talk much about the people's party i don't but also they did get five percent of the vote yeah, this is a fairly significant climb up from the 1.6 they got in 2019, which is, I think, a little surprising because they didn't really seem to have had much of a presence between elections. Bernier was doing whatever Bernier was doing, but it didn't seem like he was actually generating much news or attention. He was fundraising, though. They were posting not like as much fundraising as the major parties, but they were posting six-digit fundraising numbers for the year over year. I think they even raised a million for last year. They clearly lined up candidates. They had 310, I think, in the end around there. They didn't have a full slate, but they had a significantly larger slate than the Green Party. Yeah, I mean... And so they set up the infrastructure, right? They were setting up infrastructure and, I don't know, shitposting on gab or whatever the far right stuff is yeah, although uh more candidates than green party is a bit of a low bar this election well, only the people's party beat the greens the greens still did have 250 candidates that's more than like the communists or the freedom party and some of those other fringe groups that we were looking at earlier before started recording but i guess the question right now is how much of the people's party vote which let's remember the polls put them between five and 10 or 11%. Like they failed to live up to what their polling was. How much of it is like a pure, like anti vaccine, anti lockdown protest vote? I think a fair bit of it was. This seems to have been basically a perfect storm uh, for what would get a bunch of motivated people to want to back the People's Party. They they tried the anti-immigrant thing in 2019. It just went nowhere. And this one didn't get them any more seats. They it did seem to at least have more of a connection that actually generated more interest in it. And I think we'll never quite know how many people who voted this time were, say, conservatives that weren't happy with O'Toole going to the center, or for anti-lockdown people, or just the alt-right already before this started. It's going to be hard to say, but my sense is, in some ways, a lot of these people are like the Trump voters in 2016, low-propensity voters that got activated at one particular time by one particular issue set, and are not the type of regular people who will turn out year after year, every election going forward. Yeah, the first thing I want to note is, like, David Coletto and Abacus Data have some good data on, like, where are the 2019 voters going and where do they end up? And from that data, it looks like the People's Party are not, like, 
a purely conservative splinter group, right? They are made up of people disaffected with all of the stripes, not in equal proportions. I think there's a greater proportion from the Conservative Party, but there's also a significant proportion from the Greens, kind of an anti-establishment uh, sentiment, and some of the woo and anti-vax stuff that you might yeah, expect Yeah, I think it's actually worth kind of like party. pausing for a moment and reflecting on that 10 years ago, anti-vaxing was much more kind of a granola, green, kind of hippie left, anti-big pharma, anti-corporate type ideology undertaken, whatever you want to call it, and that the coding that it has in 2020 and 2021 is not what it's always been coded as, and you will have a lot of people who may at one point of, you know, a year or two ago would have been kind of green supporters issue, particularly in the absence of a green candidate in their writing or caring a lot about the anti-vap stuff, move over to the one party that was really talking about that sort of thing. Just as long as the federal greens don't take from this that they could have grown their vote by 5% I mean, they might. if they went full um, anti-vaxxive. Uh, <laughs> it wouldn't necessarily be a wrong lesson, but it would be a yeah. morally wrong lesson. <laughs> the People's Party also took some votes from the NDP who I think were similarly kind of protest politics. I think my local People's Party candidate had a TikTok go viral because she was like, I used to be an anti-war NDP supporter, but then they weren't pro-small business enough. It's just like a wild set of politics going on there. Um, yeah, the, the that, other thing I want to go for. kind of conspiratorial mindset, it's the sort of thing that can really go all over the place and the particular home it has in 2020 is, or in 2021, just happens to align with the People's Party. I think you see that in candidates like the one in your writing, but it could easily have gone some other way. Uh, there's a more populist left party. You, you could potentially have seen many of the people end up in the People's Party going that way. The one thing I do want to caution or that I'm concerned about is that I don't know that now that they have been somewhat activated that this will just, you know, fizzle out if the pandemic is over tomorrow or at the end of the year. Like, there is a movement that has been built here and we've been aware of for a while a far right movement in Canada, in America, in the world. It's in many different countries and it takes slightly different forms the backlash to racial justice movements and many of the changes and backlash to trans rights movements has been growing and has been vocal and what this shows is it can get organized enough to find its five percent nationwide and like they didn't win any seats thankfully they're not going to be a voice in parliament although on Many have pointed out under some proportional systems they might have, but they'd be pretty fringe like they are in most European uh, countries. I can't see any of the major parties coalitioning with the People's Party to form uh, a, you know, a yeah, functioning and, government. And as the, the Boys and Stroke guys pointed out on the recent podcast, we had a period in Canada where there was a PPC MP and he basically got ignored and sat at the end of the the big chamber, and 
don't know. Like, did did anybody really notice what Maxine Bernier was doing in the House of Commons in January of 2019? We didn't even just have him. We had Derek Sloan was back there on his own once he was an independent. He was spouting all kinds of conspiratorial anti-vax stuff every day that he got a chance to speak, which wasn't as often. Doesn't matter. It turns out independence and people with one or two people in their party aren't that effective. Sorry, Elizabeth May. Although she punches above her weight to her credit. But my point is, I don't think they're necessarily just going to fizzle out with this. They may have been a single issue party for this moment, but QAnon and all these other conspiracies aren't going away. They never go away. They just morph and churn with the moment. And given the violence associated with them, like they were connected to many of the more violent protests like around Trudeau. Uh, I think I saw a headline, and I may be misremembering this, uh, so, so don't quote me on it, but I think there's a headline in the final week of the campaign that a PBC uh, campaign manager, staffer, something like that, was charged in one of the Trudeau incidents. So yeah, we'll definitely keep an eye on that. Definitely something to for all the parties to try to figure out how to work around and what to do with that. Because that resentment can be... I'm not saying you want to take racism and get them into your party, but you want to f- figure out how to diffuse the the anger turn it to something more productive for the country and for society. And I think each of the parties has to take a different lesson from that. And with that, let's turn to the Greens, who on the raw vote side had the absolute worst night, losing votes in every single province and territory. Yeah, they they had a bad election, which was to be expected. Like, saved by the fact that Elizabeth May is pretty popular in her riding and Mike Morris, like we talked about, did the work and got a lucky break in Kitchener. Yeah, it's the the fact that they managed to even pull out two seats is surprisingly good for them, but it, it was entirely a luck of the draw on that second seat. They ran a terrible campaign. The enemy Paul barely left her riding uh, clearly it didn't do any good for her to be in her riding during there. So what was the point of... Which which is amazing, right? Let's focus on that for a second. She spent 34 of 36 days, maybe a little bit less than that, in Toronto Centre and has a piddly number of votes to show for it. I feel like she could have just door-knocked herself that entire time. And like, what was happening? Were people meeting her and going... Oh, I don't like you, actually. <laughs> That's what it feels like happened, is the more people in Toronto Centre saw her, or maybe she just couldn't have an, even a ground game in Toronto Centre. Yeah, and not leaving her riding basically meant there's no leaders to her, so the media didn't really care after the first couple of days. She basically got no headlines outside of day f- four and right around the leaders' debate. And the debate was positive for her and for the Greens to their yeah, credit. But that, but that always happens. The the Greens always have people say, oh, they did good in the debate, and it never translates into anything, really. And yeah, they, she finally made the trip out to 
Vancouver Island right at the end of the election. What, two, three days left? Did an event in a Squimalt, I think it was? And had basically no impact there on that. What the Greens should have done is they had two seats going into this, both on Vancouver Island, and in 2019 they had a couple other ridings where they either placed second or a close third on the island, and yeah, she should have decided to run in one of the adjacent ridings there, and it should have been a southern Vancouver Island campaign with Paul going outside every now and then to do something approximating a general leaders tour. Or Elizabeth May could have stepped down. Well, well let's not uh, get crazy as well here. As the National Council didn't have to be in open war with her for months. And she wasn't blameless in that, but it's pretty clear how much work was done to undermine her and how much it demoralized her. Like she was openly admitting throughout the campaign, like this has not been great. I've considered resigning many times and probably will. Which, like, yeah, fair there, enough. <laughs> like I'm actually surprised she is still leader of the Green Party. I don't know what her end goal is here. They didn't like you internally. They treated you like shit. Um, I've heard maybe the national exec has changed over a little bit in like just before the election, but Go be a diplomat again. Uh, what you were saying there, it's still not a great campaign message to be putting out there when you get the, the few media availabilities that actually your campaign's generating. I, I don't pretend to have a great insight into the minds of green voters, but just generally voters like candidates and campaigns that are seen to be doing well and winning. And... That was never the impression you got from the Greens at any point during this. Yeah, in terms of going forward, I don't know, I'd be surprised if she was leader this time next year. Yeah, I'm like, like I said, I really don't even know why she stayed on after election night, even just for her own, like, sanity. <laughs> the party seems like it's broke as well, so they can't want an election soon. It's a really bad place for the Greens right now. It was the foreseeable disaster. At least this was the the failure we saw coming. It happened. It was not great to watch. We're here. Let's move on to the NDP. They had all the hope. They are the party that can claim to be the only one that grew their vote share. And one of the few that grew that, well, they all kind of, didn't they all get grew grew or shrunk their caucus minorly the ndp grew in like i said almost every region almost every province except quebec but they still underperformed polls just under 18 percent of the vote versus many of the polls were sitting around 20 and it seems like they were just like on the edge of so many seats i think at one point early in the counting just before it was closed it was like the ndp might take 29 or 30 and even be ahead of the block or tied with the block and then every race went against them yeah they, they had a lot of losses by 500 votes or less i think or at least last time i was looking closely at the uh writing by writing results 
yeah, they drew their vote, but it was such a small amount, too. Less than two percentage points. I, I think this really shows just the limit of likability alone as a political strategy. That really did seem to be all the NDP was offering was Jagmeet Singh's likability. They didn't really seem to have a huge amount more than that. Their general campaign and messaging was a little vague beyond that. I think they were hamstrung on one part. A lot of people criticized them for not putting out the costings until two days before the election or whatever it was. And I think why they did that was simply like that's when the parliamentary budget office got back to them and it screwed them. But again, that's on their own side. They like you knew what numbers you submitted to them. And it does make me wonder like this move to outsource your budgeting to the and your costing to the parliamentary budget office really undermines your key messaging. Because if the NDP had and I saw them put a lot more emphasis on like the specifics of the wealth tax and it really helped when Trudeau accused them of unlimited zeal or going after the rich with unlimited zeal. But they didn't have time to really build those narratives. And they talked about taxing the rich to build programs. But like you said, the initial commitments pl- platform they put out just before the writs were dropped there was... first, before anyone else. And if anything, they should have had the most time to build a message around that. Because they were the first out of the game. The platform... They've pretty much been running the same talking points uh, since the last election. There wasn't really anything that changed for them during the campaign. And if anything, I mean, that's probably the NDP campaign on day one felt very similar to the NDP campaign on day 35 of this. Yeah, the best you can say about it is just that it it didn't tank it didn't fail but it just didn't they, they treaded water for, it had some yeah, minor 36 yeah. days of treading water and like i think that it does mask a little bit that it's they're in a better position than they were right after 2019 like like we said they're second places they're runner-ups in so many ridings but that doesn't do anything right now if they can just build off of this I think they one or two more points on the popular vote could translate to quite a few seats for them, as most of the projections were suggesting, but they just need to crest that. It was pointed out the NDP have only broken 20% in the popular vote twice in history in 1988 and 2011. Maybe this is a 3-4 election strategy for Singh like it was for Jack Layton, and that's what you got to do. Perhaps... Yeah, I think of all the party leaders, his job is probably the most secure because for reasons I don't entirely understand, the party base seems content with their high teens percentages and 20-something seats. And there doesn't really seem to be any real push to develop things further into a much more kind of electorally focused winning power focused or at least winning the the net stage up of official opposition status focused uh party and 
whatnot. So he'll keep. I think part of it, like I've seen a few criticisms in a few like Facebook groups, no, like the left blogs and left news outlets are pretty much on the give them another shot trend. But of the individuals who try to make the strongest critiques, what I think is lacking is the what's the alternative? No one's presenting the idea of and we'll get to this. And when we talk about the conservatives, there is at least an alternative idea here that I think we both disagree with and think won't work. But no one's oh, if only the NDP had gone with was a leader and been further center or further left or just done some I've seen some critiques of like you said the details but there's no reason that can't work under Singh given his personal popularity I think is the reason he's also pretty much shielded from the criticism Paul O'Toole and Trudeau get he's the only one with like net positives they grew through the campaign but that there's also clearly a limit on that and I do wonder how much of this is that his leadership is also in no small part, a rejection of the, we're going to focus on trying to put together the most electable, whatever that means, version of the NDP under uh, Walker. And the, I, I'm an outsider on this, but the, the sense I get looking from outside in is that may be a factor too, and, and nobody really wants to go back to the we really got to win this thing. So let's see what we need to make to the compromises to do so. Let's go to the Bloc Québécois. We'll be quick because like always we say, we don't do Quebec politics or understand it. He failed to grow the Bloc Québécois caucus, although Yves-Francois Blanchet can, I guess he did grow it by two, but he didn't sweep Quebec and Lucien Bouchard renewed kind of yeah, mandate. Serious, the, the reason they have that many seats isn't because of anything Blanchette did. Sashi Turrell is more responsible for that than anything else. She, he, he did play the victim to being called racist for a discriminatory law. Yeah, but it, like he ran a pretty terrible campaign up to that point, and it was only when that happened that things shifted. I don't I will give credit for Blanchette for the barbecue line on election night. That was probably the best. I interrupted my barbecue for this. Just great. He can probably keep his job if he wants it. I don't know who else would want to be leader of the Bloc Québécois. They've had a rough number of years. And they're in a stable pattern where they have power to draw things they want. It's never clear what they want other than more money for Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan? But more money. Oh, I'm just scrolling around my page. More money for Quebec. Keep it in. Let's go to the Conservatives. I think it's the most interesting failure. The Liberal failures are pretty obvious or pretty interesting too. The Conservatives tried to, as we said, pitch a moderating campaign to bleed some Western votes in favor of some Toronto metropolitan city votes, urban votes, Eastern votes, whatever it took to win. Ideally, a majority in their view, but more realistically in the short term, a minority at least. 
and they had some momentum early on. And then, as we've talked about, a number of flip-flops and difficulties and comms issues and just being wedged by the liberals seems to have all backfired and on them and they are back where they started. Yeah, so they're, they, I think, had the most interesting kind of campaign arc of any of them and post-elections probably going to be the most interesting as a result too for those reasons. I, I think the biggest problem they had was time, really. I think the general strategy was good. It wasn't always executed perfectly at the tactical level, but the real issue with that is that it started on August 15th of 2021 and not, would it be like August 20? Yeah, when did he get, uh, it's August of last year when he got elected as leader, I think. Anyway, it didn't, the problem is it started in 2021, right, as the Rick dropped rather than in 2020, or at least it, the couple hints we saw of the strategy in 2020 were not consistently followed through and built on during that time. And the sense I got was that people may have liked the direction O'Toole went. They weren't necessarily convinced that was the Conservative Party overall. And the work needed to be done to both do more to bring the caucus on side with that and also just establish the new brand and build that identity and recognition within the Canadian public. And you can't do that over 36 days, particularly when you're taking fire uh, all- for the last three weeks from the Liberals during that. Like the Conservatives were obviously hampered as much as the NDP and everyone else who wasn't Justin Trudeau by the fact we were in a crisis pandemic and it's hard to just get attention when you also don't want to be unless you're going to go full Maxime Bernier and just be like I don't care about social solidarity I'm just in it for myself. O'Toole did care about trying to support recovery efforts as much as everyone in Ottawa was trying to. He did I think, try to make the case. And I think we did see with, and we've talked about his positions that came out early around worker stuff and that switch to blue collar conservatism, as well as the climate plan was like February or March. It was early this year. That stuff was put out there. Maybe there needed to be more done internally to try to convince conservatives that this is what was necessary. But you're also seeing now, and because it didn't work in the end, it didn't give him a government because power clears all sins. It's now the question of the anger is coming out. There are people who feel betrayed, conservatives who feel betrayed because he ran on a true blue platform, which he said, I'm going to be the right wing defender of Canadian values, conservative values, our Canadian values, anti-carbon tax, all of that stuff in his leadership race. And now it just looks like he lied and he did it for power, which goes to one of the challenges I think Canadians had with the Conservative Party as presented was a question of trust and whether your average voter would trust that there wasn't, I don't even know if hidden agenda. I don't think we were quite in that level of, oh, they're going to try and ban abortion or anything as much as the Conservatives said, but I don't think Canadians trusted. I don't think anyone really 
fought into the, particularly the abortion wedge as much as the liberals wanted it to be. But yeah, there was definitely that trust question. And I think something that conservatives need to wrestle with is the fundamental structure that in order to win the leadership race, you have to position yourself in a way that's not particularly electable to the general public is very much a challenge and not one that can easily be rectified. And I definitely think there were ways O'Toole did not handle that particularly gracefully. And that has created some ill feelings, but there doesn't seem to be a better op, or there doesn't seem to be a way for a conservative leader to run in a leadership race, win that while maintaining a position that's broadly generally appealable to the rest of the country. And you saw what happened with Sheer, and the results were different, but the general situation, I think, was much less favorable to O'Toole at the start of the campaign or in the lead up to the campaign than it was for uh, Sheer when he when the 2019 election started. And if anything, I think O'Toole's early strength in the first two weeks may end up biting him because before the election was called, we the general consensus was liberals will get a majority or they're in step for or in line for a majority and if they'd called the election started off aimed pretty squarely at the majority territory and then over the next five weeks O'Toole had fought them down to the place where we are now I think he'd probably be getting a better reception than where he is now after he had a really strong couple of weeks. There was talk of Prime Minister O'Toole at the end of the second week. And three weeks after that, we're back to where we were in 2019. And there's this, and if anything, the kind of hopes got stirred up in the conservatives that then got dashed. And that, that I think actually makes it feel worse for them and more likely to backlash against it. He taught them to believe only to crush their spirits. I like it. The one thing I want to circle back to just super briefly on how do you bring about a better leader, it just struck me of bring back the delegated conventions. Maybe there's something in there. We'll dig into that more if we ever come to a leadership race, but that's the question we're at now. O'Toole is intentioned he wants to stay on. He really played it up on election night that he said, and I don't know where this came from, but he said that Trudeau is only going to govern for 18 months and that was his uh, Apparently promise. it was said during it's, the TVR debate. It's likely. It's 18 months to two years. It's a usual half-life of a minority government. So he does have that advantage to be like, I need to hold on. This needs to be a two-election strategy kind of thing. Do you think he can hold on? The conservatives would make a mistake to dump him. We talked about they need time to build on that. There is room to, I think, make the move to the center strategy work, but like I said, it, it can't be done in 36 days and they, they need to build on it. I think they have put in a decent foundation during this campaign and can, if they can keep O'Toole around, build on that, not go through the disruption of a leadership race and then having to get a new leader to find his feet, his footing, introduce himself to Canadians and get ready to or herself, if it's Leslin Lewis. That is true. I'd like to see... Le 
That would be a bad yeah. choice. Jesus. <laughs> no effect. Well, yeah, I, I wouldn't mind seeing Lisa Wright come back into to politics, but that's not going to happen, unfortunately. Yeah, so Getting it, a new it would be a mistake bad. to get rid of O'Toole. There were mistakes made in the campaign for sure. They were all fixable, and they can learn from 2021 and fix those mistakes, get a better answers to the very obvious everybody knows they're coming you should have had the answer prepared for them day one of becoming leader of the opposition attacks from the liberals on guns and abortion and that stuff and just have that ready to go and from there build up on that to, to be a better campaign in uh, uh, 2022 2023 what, whether or not that happened, though, I don't know, it's hard to say. It's going to be a fight, for sure. There's already some rumblings that are becoming public on that. For the most part, from what I can see, it's at least the general reticent of media. There's a, there's a change.org petition, which is just hilarious. And not like just a random conservative, like a guy who's on the federal council started a change.org petition. Does it, is anyone who's serious ever started change.org? I mean, it's probably good for data mining or something. Like that. I don't know. It's not even the best because change holds it. You don't get it as easily. Okay. I've looked at it. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, like if, it's funny. If it's you're going to do the palace entry knives out stuff, you don't start a change.org petition on that. It's going to be a fight. I think so far he still has most of the kind of commentator class of conservatives. They may not be happy about it, but like I, I haven't seen you know a flood of op-eds in the National Post calling for him to to step down. So I, I think it remains to be seen, and it's going to be a question of how he can manage it. I don't think his future is necessarily determined yet, and it's, if anything, too early to say. I'm conscious of the time, so let's move on to the Liberals, and we'll probably have to close it off there. Obviously, their failure started by calling an election that they they claim they've won it, but and they, Trudeau claimed a clear mandate. Yeah, that but, was the most bizarre Jesus. thing of all the election night speeches, was Trudeau saying... That Canadians delivered him a clear mandate when he got. Okay, he wrote two speeches for election night and didn't realize he would need a third. That's what if it's the same or a tie? He, he couldn't bring out the tie one anyway, so he had to bring out the winning speech. Yeah, and but the, he is now the. That's what they did. Got, what was the actual final vote total on that one? So he got a total of thirty-two point six percent of the vote on that, which I believe makes this government going forward, the government that has the lowest percentage of the votes ever in Canadian. Scott, that's a, that's a proof of the liberal optimization and how efficient they are at so that, elections. The boys in yeah, short pants that, that did a great says, piece on that. I, I, we don't need to take. It's not wrong, but that's also bad. Yeah, it's not the point of democracy yeah. to game the system but, as much like, as you can. Whatever the rules are, people will eventually structure their campaign apparatus around it, and we'll see changing strategies if we ever get to a, a PR system, which, geez, I, I hope the conservatives change tune on this, because 
of the six elections since 2006, and basically the last 15 years of elections, the, the Liberals only won a plurality of the popular vote once in 2015. Five of the last six elections, the Conservatives have the largest vote share of any party, and under a PR system, they had the largest block of votes or largest block of seats in the house and would be presumptive a the major player in any coalition that gets assembled in that case and like the, there is clearly a, a scenario going forward where a conser- a right of center party under PR system could do quite well for themselves but that's neither here nor there so we did this after 2015, and we're probably not going to do it again, despite the fact that we... So, the Liberals, they go into an election, and the first question is, okay, why? And at no point did they effectively answer it. Like, at the start, Trudeau was talking about, this is the most important election, we're coming out of a pandemic, and so, this is the most important election since 1945, he went on record as saying. Forgot about that quote real quick, he did. And from there, it was just like various attempts to try to justify why like parliament wasn't working and people were like, how you were the ones who weren't passing bills. Like you could pass more bills. The NDP says they're ready to pass your bills and pass budgets as long as there's a pandemic. And yeah, they, they never had a good answer to that. It was like watching, like Horgan didn't have great answers, but at least he was able to put the question yeah. to bed. And he talked about, we just need to put politics behind us. I hated that answer, but apparently it worked because we stopped talking about that. And instead, we talked about like the BC Liberals. They ran a terrible campaign. So I think that helped seal the deal there. But like the Liberals, we spent so much time talking about why are we having an election when they should have had two or three clear policies. Instead, they were like, we're running on our budget plus a little cool, why didn't you just keep governing? Yeah, they had a pretty uninspired campaign overall, and the first two weeks were just terrible for them. They couldn't make anything like it. They finally managed to connect the blow on, on gun, and basically from there on in, the campaign was just trying to find one wedge after another to drive into the Conservatives, and at no point did they really lay out what they would do differently or what kind of the next or why the 44th parliament would be different than the 43rd parliament that they were had just uh, completed on and they couldn't justify why they weren't dismissing candidates with sexual assault yeah, allegations against and, sorry, not just to the conservatives but the, the, they ran a really good campaign in terms of just getting their candidates to not do anything to derail the the campaign, which is more of an accomplishment than it should be, but uh, <laughs> they, yeah. You're not wrong. Like, it was a very bozo yeah, free election. They ran a disciplined campaign for having just a bunch of candidates out there that they had to recruit and vet and everything. Good on the conservatives for that. That's definitely a strength that they should try and build on going forward. But yeah, the liberals did not match that. Most of the oppo dumps that actually were impactful were against them this time, which has not always been the case. They were slow every time they had to deal with a candidate. And it was typically the case where a new sword would get released. 
Trudeau would awkwardly try and avoid answering questions on it for two days, and finally, after two days to a week, the uh, candidate would announce they're suspending their campaign on that. Or it just was not well done. I, I think Sunny, the Sunny Ways had disappeared by 2019, and this election drove the nail into the coffin of that. And uh, a lot of thoughts being. Uh, put out there about what happens to O'Toole, but I think the Liberals should be thinking pretty hard about what happens to their leadership going forward, because looking at this, they ought to be asking themselves if Trudeau has taken the Liberal Party as far as they can, and is there a potential fourth election under Trudeau that they can win, or even make gains on, and that doesn't seem sure from where I'm looking right now. So what you can say in the Liberals' defense is they floundered in those first two weeks, and that's when the Conservatives got ahead. But after that, they did manage to bring it back. And then I guess they also treaded water for the last week and a half, but managed to hold it to where we were, which is like their... I think Matt Gurney appropriately... Worst best case yeah, I scenario. Think it was Matt Gurry that appropriately uh, analogized it to trench warfare because man, it really felt that way. Yeah. By the end, and so like they're still government, so it's not like a total loss for them in the way that it's not a total loss for any of the parties. Trudeau can claim like a cup, a seat here, and some changes in vote shares that are good for him. Like the tr- Liberals have really shored up. Toronto and Vancouver and urban areas as their terrain. Like the fact neither the Conservatives nor the NDP can make gains in Toronto is quite something, right? The party has a base that's strong. And what's really clear is this party's base is the Trudeau base. So to the question of his leadership, like it's not the party of the 90s, right? We were talking about this in Slack in that it's just much more of a cult of personality and does anyone within the party want the leadership like Christa Freeland is the obvious answer but even she seems like she's there as a member of Team Trudeau and not like she's flying his flag every time she's very competent on her own but we haven't seen the leadership ambition from her I guess the one wild card is the Mark Carney free agent because he didn't end up running in this election maybe because he was smarter smart enough to avoid that fiasco but he can now credibly start organizing liberals in a way to say it's time for some changes maybe that's where he goes yeah, in the long term I think it's a little easy at the moment to just underrate how unusual a period this is in Liberal Party history, but there hasn't been a bunch of internal fighting over anything really at all since uh, post-2011. And that has not always been the history of the Liberals. So at some point, things are going to go back there. I am just not sure when that's going to be. And maybe we'll leave it there for tonight. We have tons more we could talk about, but we'll look at where this parliament goes next week because... I'm sure that's all anyone's going to be thinking about in the next week. And like we said, we'll probably not know who's in cabinet or what they're going to be doing with cabinet for quite a while. And we have to get back to BC politics because stuff is happening here.
slowly. There's not been much in, during the election. They, the, the government kept a low profile, for sure. And that has been Playcoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playcoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playcoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening. <laughs>